Colossians chapter 4. Let's pray together and let's jump in here studying this passage in the Word of God. Lord, thank you. Uh, As we sang, Lord, we pray, speak and fulfill in us your purposes for your glory. Speak and renew our minds. Speak and build your church. Change us, Lord. Grow us in Christ's name. Amen. One of the dangers that churches like ours tend to face, because you all know we're not perfect yet, right? You with me? All right. One of the, one of the errors, one of the, the, the difficulties, one of the pitfalls for us is that churches like ours tend toward an inward focus. Now, why would I say that? We love and we are bent toward fulfilling certain commands of God really well, right? Many people in a church like ours are really good at studying the Bible. And that's great, isn't it? You wouldn't want it to be any less. There's very little that I could ever think of. There's really nothing we could do that's more important than being filled with the Word of God in every single thing that we do. We need Scripture. We love Scripture. And our church, you guys have to admit, is naturally shaped to be a teachy sort of place, right? And we're good with that. Is anybody bothered by that? If you're bothered by that, you're probably not going to ultimately be happy here. And I don't mean that in any harsh way whatsoever, but we're going to be a word-driven, word-centered, teachy kind of church. And when I first visited here, I found that this church loves singing the praises of God. There is a heart, there is a joy behind our singing that shows me that this is a big part of who we are as a congregation. We like it. We enjoy it. It sounds good in this room. And so we sing, and we sing to God's glory. That's commanded by God. It's right. And I would say that there is a genuine fellowship in this body. Man, we, are, we got folks who love each other a lot. And it's especially true for those who have been together a long time. Look, so many of you have gone through a whole lot together. And you've become each other's family in a lot of ways. And that's good too. But all those things I just listed, which are strengths of this church, are for the most part inward. They are us doing things where we can kind of huddle together, we can enjoy each other, we can think together, we can show love to each other. Please don't get me wrong. These are excellent things. But God has other commands for us too. God has other roles for us to play. And if we, as a church, are going to be what God commands us to be, we, through our prayers, through our words, through our actions, have to learn to look upward and outward. Now, through the book of Colossians, we have seen a great deal of inward focus on the church, what she should be. Paul opened the letter by giving thanks to God for the Colossian church. Paul put forth to the church a great deal of effort in chapters 1 and 2 to magnify the deity, the godness, the supremacy of Jesus. The Colossians learned and needed to know that Jesus is God in the flesh and not sort of mini-sub-deity. He's really God. 
Paul reminded the Colossians that they need to be guarded against false teaching that would demean Jesus or that would bring legalism or moralism or mysticism into the church. And instead, the church is supposed to be focused on Jesus. The church is supposed to be focused on things above. The church is supposed to be focused in Colossians 3 at the hope that we have in the coming return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the last several verses that we've studied together, inside the church, again, we've seen a call for Christ-like living in the church. He called the Colossians to put off sins of sexual immorality, of anger, of hateful speech, of any sort of class system thinking that acts like one people group is better than another. Get rid of all that. Paul told them to put on in their life in the church the attributes of Jesus, like compassion and kindness and humility, meekness and patience and love. He called the church to be centered around the word. He called the church to help each other grow. He called the church to sing truth with joy and gratitude. And as we saw over the last couple of weeks, we saw the call for believers to live out the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of God the Father as well, in their families, in their households. But those are very inward. And so we know that that's a real important part of the life of the church and we would never demean it. But now, before Paul finishes this letter, we've probably got two sermons in this book left. Does it feel like Colossians has been long or short, by the way? Okay, short. That's nice. Okay. That makes me feel good, actually, because if you'd said long, I'd have felt bad. So thank you for that. Right before we wrap up, there's one last set of challenges for the Colossians. And these challenges involve looking upward and looking outward. They involve prayer and gospel progress. So as we open the verses here, start even now asking God in your own heart, God, help us as a church because we're weaker here than I think we should be. Pray that we'll recognize our weaknesses and pray that we'll grow from the word. Listen, guys, I think you know me well enough by now to know I don't ever stand here wanting to beat you up or discourage you. But God has a call for us and he wants us to fulfill it. We already worship well. We teach the word well, I certainly hope. We care for each other well and we need to just keep all those things happening. But let's see what else God wants us to do well. And I have to say, and this is just ridiculous, by the way. So, have you ever looked at the sovereignty of God and going, oh my goodness, this is just almost too much. We didn't plan this sermon for today. This was not supposed to be today's sermon. So how funny is it that you just studied prayer in Sunday school, those of you who did Grudem, and point number one of our sermon is pray. God is in control. You know that, right? Point number one of three, if you want to make blanks, Pray. Look at verse 2 of Colossians 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Y'all, God wants us to pray. Is there anything about that that's surprising to you? I hope not, right? I don't think so. Nobody's surprised by that. But, Ask a hundred Christians how they feel about their prayer lives. And I bet you that 95 of them will tell you that they are unsatisfied. Let me ask you, how many of you would just say to me, Travis, I pray enough. 
my prayer life is really rocking. <laughs> Anybody want to claim that? How many of you would say, Pastor, I know my prayer life needs to be better? Amen. Amen. And so here's what I want you not to do. Don't put up the walls that say, oh my gosh, I'm about to take a beating on prayer. Let's just learn and grow together. We all want our prayer lives to get better. So does our Lord. So what is prayer? Most simply put, prayer is us talking to God. That's what it is. Prayer is us taking time out of our lives to humble ourselves, to speak to our Lord, our thoughts, our concerns, our desires, our praises. That's it. Don't complicate it. And the command that opens this section is to continue steadfastly in prayer. The thing we should hear right away is that this implies an intense devotion to prayer. The New American Standard Bible actually translates this phrase, be devoted or devote yourselves to prayer. And if you could combine it, it wouldn't be bad, right? Be devoted, be continuously devoted, be steadfastly, continuously devoted to prayer. Persevere in prayer, stick to prayer even when it's hard. You guys know Jesus taught that way, right? He told stories, especially in Luke, of people who he said, listen, I want you to hear this story and know, keep going in prayer even when it feels like it's not working. In Ephesians 6.18, Paul wrote that we should be praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. How about this one, though? 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Can anybody quote that one from memory, 1 Thessalonians 5.17? Pray without ceasing. You should know that one because it's short. Is that good counsel, pray without ceasing? You betcha. And we know it's what we're supposed to do. Every one of us knows I'm supposed to be a better prayer. How do we do it, though? How do you continue in prayer? So let's get practical for a second. I want to give you some tips. Take what helps, okay? The first way for you to continue in prayer, I would argue, is take time for prayer. Set aside some time every day to pray. Schedule it in and don't miss your appointment. There's no way I can make that easy for you, right? Make your schedule. Do it. And that requires some discipline, some spiritual discipline on your life. But it can, if you put it into practice, if you make it a part of your daily schedule, your daily routine, it can become common. It can become a habit. It could be like, you know, you brush your teeth every day. I hope. <laughs> Pray. Don't leave the house without it. Second, when you have scheduled into your life prayer time, and when you've kept that appointment... Make sure to pray informally as you go through the day. What do I mean? You have somebody come to you and mention to you a prayer request. Hey, would you pray for this? Here's a great trick. Pray for it right then. Right there. How many times have you told somebody, I'll pray for you and forgotten? But you know what you do? Someone says, man, would you pray for me? I'm about to face this challenge. Stop right there and say, okay. I will. Let's pray right now. It's very unlikely that they're going to say no. So do it. When you get an email and you see a Facebook status that asks for prayer, pray immediately, right? Just stop right there. A simple, God, 
please bless Bobby, wife, is a good prayer. God hears that. God is glorified by that. Now, little sentence prayers like that should not be the only way you ever pray, but if you're already setting aside time for more formal prayer, little sentence prayers like that are a wonderful way for you to, as the Bible says, pray without ceasing. Now, God also says to us in this passage to be watchful in prayer. Or again, maybe translated, be, be aware, be awake. So, can I suggest to you that your only prayer time of the day should not be right when you're about to fall asleep? Now, our bedtime prayer is good. You betcha. But if that's the only time you pray, you're going to crash before you get much work done. Now, again, it's great to fall asleep while praying. That's awesome. Really is. I think God likes it. Don't you think he would like that? I mean, parents, if your kids are talking to you, telling you, you, know, telling you something, and they crash out, you're cool with that. In fact, you're probably happy about it. But, but you know, if when it's time for you to pray, if you're worn out, if you're tired, get up, move around, walk around, walk around your block and pray. Schedule in time so you can pray alertly. But there's another thing that might be in that command to be watchful in prayer. You need to know what's going on in the world around you so you can pray wisely. I'll make a plug here, David, for the uh, Voice of the Martyrs. Right? Why in the world do you think we have a little newsletter from the Voice of the Martyrs? Could you not, without that, say, God, please help the Christians being persecuted all around the world? Of course you could. Would that be a good prayer? Of course it would. But would it be a better prayer for you to know this particular group of Christians in this particular setting are facing this particular hostility? God, please help. That's the way you pray watchfully. General prayers, vague prayers, again, they're fine, but they're not what God's after here. God is giving us a call to live with our heads up and with our eyes open so we know how to pray. Which, by the way, Christians, you know God calls you to pray for each other, right? Does anybody want to deny that? How are you going to do that if you don't know what's going on in each other's lives? You cannot pray for each other well unless you know each other well, which is why we do 242 groups, which is why we meet in homes, which is why we have our email list, which is why we ought to call each other and visit each other and talk to each other so I can know, tell me what's going on in your world so I can pray for you specifically, so I can be watchful in prayer. Now, Another piece of practical counsel. I'm just all over practical counsel right now for a moment. It might be good for you to learn to pray in fresh ways. If your prayers are always a repetition of the very same phrases, maybe it's time for you to try to use new words. So watch yourself. Try for just a moment. Try for the next time you pray not to use the same standby terms you always use. So, here's a, here's a challenge. What if you had to pray without ever saying the word bless? How would you do? Because you know what? Sometimes we say, God bless them, and we don't even think about what we're asking. So, maybe try to t- drop it for a couple weeks. I, I know Christians that if they could not use the phrase lead, guide, and direct in their prayer time, they would explode. <laughs> what about the phrase healing hand? What if that was taken out of your prayer life? How about instead of using the pat phrases, say what you really want God to do? Might not be bad for you. 
Could you pray without saying Father God, not at the beginning, middle, and end of every sentence? (laughs) This is me completely being snarky right now, by the way. (laughs) But, just for the fun of it, just to illustrate this, and I'll get off my soapbox. Kelly, if I were Kelly talking to Kelly, Kelly, about Kelly, how you're doing, Kelly? (laughs) Kelly, does Kelly feel awkward, Kelly, if I keep Kelly saying Kelly? Every Kelly pause? Yes, right? She's embarrassed now, isn't she? No, she's okay. Do you pray like that? Just asking. Maybe it will be good for us to engage our brains and pray with words that are different. Changing your phraseology may help you to re-engage your mind better when you pray. Or, how about this, allow God to lead you in your prayers, not by listening for a voice in your head, by the way, but by looking to his word. Read the scriptures and pray the passages in front of you. So, so like, obviously, what's a passage that we could read through that would help us to pray? Model prayer, right? Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Especially if you learn to use that passage not as the words to repeat, but as categories to pray. You can really get a lot of mileage. If you've ever struggled to pray for half an hour, pray the Lord's Prayer by categories. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Spend five minutes praising God, calling him holy, and asking him to show that his his name is holy. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray for God to set the world the way the world ought to be set. You think you could pray for at least five minutes that God would make this place better than it is? Give us today our daily bread. Asking God to provide for your needs. Can you pray for five minutes on your needs and the needs of others? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Could you pray five minutes of confession of sin and of expressing your need to forgive others? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Could you pray for five minutes on God? Please help me not to do stupid stuff. Please protect me from attacks that would come from outside me, whether it's from spiritual enemies or physical enemies or my own heart or sickness. It would not be hard to pray half an hour just using the Lord's Prayer as categories. But you don't have to be bound just to the, quote, prayer passages, right? Read a psalm and pray like the psalmist. Read a letter from Paul and pray that you'll love and understand or think or do what Paul's commanding. Or read the Gospels and pray through what Jesus teaches and what Jesus shows us. One last piece of practical counsel here from this verse. The Bible says pray with thanksgiving. Don't let prayer be a burden for you. It is a joy to talk to God. Get this. Just think about this for a second. The one who spoke the stars into existence by the power of his voice says he will take time to listen to you and to care about you. Folks, this is good. So pray thankfully. Pray grateful. Let gratitude color your prayers. For, let, let that gratitude come out for who God is, for what he's done. And I promise you that's going to help your heart and it's going to glorify God and it's going to make your prayers stronger, richer. All right. First point, pray. 
That's complicated, but I think we can do it, right? Second point. Pray for gospel progress. We just looked up a moment ago. We're going to start looking up and out now. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. How many of you have heard of Ravi Zacharias? You guys know Zacharias? Christian author, philosopher, one of the best accents on Christian radio. He could talk about anything. It wouldn't matter. You just love hearing him. Well, he wrote one time and gave it in a testimony about how he got started in ministry. And one of his challenges was the question of, does he really believe the Bible? Because if he really believes it, it's going to change him. Here's what he writes, and I'm going to quote now. He says, quote, Among the thoughts that shaped me most was the story Leonard Ravenhill told of the notorious British criminal Charlie Peace who was going to his death on a capital offense. As the minister was reading from the Bible in another book, Charlie Peace, this is the criminal, asked him, Do you really believe in such a place called hell? The minister replied, Yeah. Charlie responded, and this is the thought that impacted me, Sir, if I believe what you and the church of God say you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it if need be on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. Zacharias says, that struck me. If what we lay claim to on these matters is true, then the dramatic influence on our lives is going to be inestimable. Even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it. That is the kind of reality, and these are the words that shape one's call. This was the truth I was going to proclaim. How amazing is that? How do you feel when you hear those words, by the way? Are you convicted? Are you encouraged? Are you inspired? Is there an all of the above box? Paul to the Colossians would have been just as inspiring as the words we just read because Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus and he had traveled the world with the good news of Jesus and he had preached in synagogues and he had preached in public squares and he had seen great conversions and he had faced horrible persecution. Listen to Paul's own description of his life in 2 Corinthians 11, 23-28. Paul's talking about some guys that are acting like they're big and devoted to the faith when they really aren't. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. He says, I'm talking like a madman. He, 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 he's pointing out he's not full of himself. He says, with far greater labors, with far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. 
How's that for a life? But what a commitment to the spread of the gospel. Now, what would you think a guy whose testimony was like that would pray? I can tell you what my prayer would be. Pray that God gets me out of this junk. I'm kind of tired of getting beaten. Wouldn't you pray like that? Why me? As Paul writes this letter, himself presently in prison for sharing the gospel, Paul's at jail now. He asked that the church pray for him that he might faithfully continue to share the gospel, even though sharing the gospel is what put him in jail. Christians, we need to pray for those on the front lines of hardcore missionary service. It's true that all Christians are commanded to be witnesses to Christ, but it is absolutely true that there are people who are doing work that not all of us get to do. There are people throughout the past and in the present who travel through distant lands, who learn new languages, who give everything they've got to see to it that people are saved. Think about years ago. Do you guys know the story of John Payton? Do you guys know about Lottie Moon or Adoniram Judson or William Carey? If you don't know those names, you need to look those folks up. They are good folks to look up. They're all examples. They're great examples. And we know of others. And our church even financially and prayerfully supports other people who are taking the gospel to the nations. And we should be praying that they have everything they need to keep going. But at the same time, could we not pray the same stuff for ourselves? We want to be a part of the move to see the gospel reach the nations. And we want to be a part of seeing the gospel reach our neighbors. So let's look at what Paul asked the believers to pray on his behalf because it's going to help us to pray for missionaries and for ourselves. So look again at verses 3 and 4. Paul asks for an open door. He's saying, please pray for me that I have an opportunity to speak the gospel to people who need to hear it. Missionaries need that, and you and I need that. So pray for God to give you opportunities to communicate the gospel. So pray, God, God help me this week to talk to somebody who doesn't know you. Do you pray like that, by the way? Do you pray, God, bring somebody across my path I can share Jesus with? If you don't, you should start. Because you'll be amazed how often when that prayer becomes a part of your life, you just run into people who are asking spiritual questions. Ask for an open door of opportunity for the gospel that you could walk through. Paul also says, pray that I will declare the mystery of Christ. Now, real quick, why is it a mystery? In Paul's writings, a mystery is something that used to be hidden, but which is now understood. This we saw back at the beginning of Colossians in chapter one, verses twenty-five to twenty-eight. Paul talks about the gospel and says, "It is that of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you see, the mystery is that the Gentiles and the Jews would understand that God is willing to save anybody of any nationality who comes to him turning from their sin and putting their trust in the finished work of Jesus. The mystery is that God will actually live within a person who turns from his or her sin, turns to Jesus, and cries out to the Son of God for mercy and salvation. 
The mystery, in some sense, is that being God's child is not about being religious or doing good deeds, but it's about trusting Jesus and allowing Jesus to forgive you and place His Spirit in you. No matter how reformed we are, folks, we still believe that God saves every single person who turns from their sin and turns to Christ in faith. That's a mystery to people. Well, Paul went to prison for preaching that truth. But as he sits in a jail cell, he prays that God would open up even more opportunities for him to share the gospel with the people around him. Why? Because the soldiers need to hear about Jesus. And the other prisoners need to hear about Jesus. And the royal officials who who are part of the legal system need to hear about Jesus. And eventually Caesar himself needs to hear about Jesus. Paul says, guys, please pray that I'll get more chances to tell people about Jesus. Paul was brilliant and brave. He wrote 13 of the New Testament books, but get this, when Paul asks for prayer, for opportunities, for evangelism, he asked that the Colossians would pray that he would speak the gospel clearly. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Paul said, please guys, pray that I'll do it clearly? He wants to be clear about the gospel because it's how he ought to speak. But why is this an issue? Have you ever noticed that backing down is easy? Have you ever, just be honest with me here, have you all ever wimped out during evangelism? You ever wanted to present part of the gospel, but only the nice part, the easy part? Have you ever wanted to look more open-minded, more tolerant, more modern? And so you kind of gloss over the hard parts of the gospel. That ever happened to you? Am I the only one who's ever wimped out? No. It's a problem for almost any evangelist. And Paul says, guys, pray for me that I'll make the gospel clear to everyone I witness to. Now, simple question. What is the true gospel? What is this thing we've got to make clear? You need to know it, right? It begins with God. God is holy. God is perfect, sinless, the glorious creator of everything that exists. God will not tolerate sin. God must be just. God will be a judge. God is also loving. What about humanity? We are made by God. We're made by God in God's image. Our purpose is to give God glory. And though we are commanded by God to be perfect like He's perfect, every single one of us has rebelled against God. All humanity has done wrong. Maybe your sin seems big to you. Maybe it seems little to you. But either way, if you are any degree less than perfect, and all of us are less than perfect, you're a rebel against God. And your rebellion against God will earn you forever in hell if your sin is not taken away from you, if your sin is not forgiven. That brings us to Jesus. Jesus Christ is God's own Son, God in the flesh. And as God in the flesh, Jesus is perfect. He's flawless. He's holy in every way. As a man, Jesus lived out the perfect life that we should have lived but never could. Then Jesus died on the cross willingly as a sacrificial substitute for the sins of God's people. And while Jesus was on the cross, God the Father punished Jesus for all the sins God would ever forgive. 
And after he died, Jesus was buried, but he came out of the grave alive again, resurrected on the third day. That's Jesus. So how do you and I get the benefit of what Jesus has done? As weird as it sounds, there's not a single thing you can do to be forgiven. You can't earn the grace of God. All you can do is believe in Jesus and throw yourself on his mercy. But God promises. God promises that every single person who turns to Jesus in faith, rejecting their sins and saying, God, I want you to be in charge, that every single person that turns to Jesus receiving his gift will be forgiven. Famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What's the gospel? If you don't have Jesus, when you die, you will spend forever in hell paying the price for your sins. If you do have Jesus, Jesus already paid for your sins. Every single person can be forgiven who turns away from themselves and puts their faith in Jesus. It's a pretty clear, pretty simple message, actually, isn't it? Let's not mess around with it. Speak it clearly. Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The gospel is not about my experience. It's about truth. The gospel is not a message of Jesus as the great fixer of all of life's problems. The gospel is not about using pressure tactics or gimmicks or cleverness or even being talented in presenting it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not about veiled references and secret codes and hidden meanings. And it's not about unlocking the secret to perfect health, wealth, and prosperity. Evangelism, sharing the gospel, is about telling the truth and leaving the results of that telling to God. How do you know if you've been successful as an evangelist? It's not if they get saved. It's did you tell the truth? Now Paul asks the Colossians for prayer in this regard. Why? Because it is hard, folks. It is hard to share a message that most of the world rejects. It is hard, but it is important. So pray for missionaries who need to share the gospel. And pray for yourself to share the gospel. And then when God gives you the opportunity, share the gospel with clarity. Third point, final point. You're still with me, right? Okay. Last point. Live wisely in the world. Again, very outwardly focused. Live wisely in the world. Look at verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's do another quote. You've probably heard this one quoted to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Two things I want to tell you about that quote. Number one, he didn't say it. Number two, it's not a good quote. In chapter 17 of the rule of 1221, Francis told some guys who wanted to preach but weren't getting to preach yet, don't get into the pulpit and preach until you have been given proper permission. But then he added, let all the brothers, however, preach by their deeds. 
That's what Francis actually said. Now, Paul here calls the Christians to watch their conduct toward the world. And he commands, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Why? Because we want them to hear our message, and we all know that actions do speak louder than words. So even if Francis did not say what some say that Francis said, his thought is true in this part. Lifestyle is a part of evangelism. People pay attention to what you do as much as what you say. So do what you can to preach the gospel with your life as much as you can. And that means that you will do as much as you can in the way that you live to make Jesus look attractive to outsiders and to show them that those who know Jesus are different. Live with wisdom toward those outside the church and seize every opportunity to demonstrate the love and the glory of Christ. Now, here's the thing. Be careful. Catch a warning here. Do not make this an either-or distinction. You cannot say, I will either evangelize with words or with my deeds. God never gives you that opportunity. It is a both-and proposition. Paul already told us that we need to speak the gospel clearly, which is how we ought to speak. Nobody is ever, ever going to be saved if they don't hear the words that communicate the content of the gospel. Preach those words. Speak those words. But when you do, back those words up with a wise, godly life. Words alone are not enough. A lifestyle alone is not enough. Do both. So you and I have to pray, we've got to preach, we've got to live the gospel. And then this section closes with a call, get this, to gracious speech. Paul wrote in chapter 3, communicate well inside the church, right? Remember that? Don't lie, don't, you don't let your anger get out, don't be wrathful, don't be malicious. But now we're dealing with outside the church. In all of our lives. We are to demonstrate love and graciousness in every aspect of our lives. Are you listening, Reformed folks? Because we need it as much as anybody. We are to demonstrate love and graciousness in every aspect of our lives. All of it. That means our evangelism. That means every speech, every word that comes out of our mouth toward outsiders. We have to learn to speak with grace. Grace is to display favor that was not owed in our speech, grace means you speak with kindness even when the person you're speaking to does not deserve that kindness. What's the opposite of gracious speech toward outsiders? Harsh speech, cruel speech, belittling speech. Don't let that be you. Let your speech instead be seasoned with salt. And let's not get into a big Bible interpretation about all the ways that salt was a preservative years ago. That's all fine, but it said seasoned with salt. When you season food with salt, why do you do that? Because you want it to taste good. Right? Salty speech, then, is speech that is tasty to the lost. What would that mean? What would tasty, gracious speech mean? It means you speak the truth, but you speak it in a gracious way. Hear me. There is no excuse for cruelty in evangelism. There is no excuse for that. And guys, I've seen it. I've been around people who were sharing what they claimed was the faith by yelling at people, by carrying around signs in which they declare all the things that they say God hates. 
And those people have no love to offer those same sinners they're preaching at and yelling at. I've heard Christians say that they're sharing Jesus, but really all they want to do is win an argument and make somebody else look stupid. That is not gracious, salty speech. God instead calls us to speak with love. Speak with grace. Speak always the truth, but speak the truth seasoned with the grace of God. And Paul says to do this so that you know how to answer every person. How does, that comp- how does that get together? How do those mix? How do you know how to answer an outsider? How can you tell if somebody is hardened toward the gospel? Listen to me. If you're a jerk, they might just not like you. They may be open to hearing about Jesus, just not from a mean person. But if you're gracious and gentle in your speech, you can get a clear reaction from them about where they are. So speak the truth with love and with grace. Charlie Peace said, Sir, if I believe what you and the Church of God say you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it if need be on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. Are you willing to do what it takes, Christians, to share the gospel? You don't have to crawl on broken glass, thankfully. What do you do? You start with a devotion to prayer. You pray for open doors for evangelism. You witness with clarity. You witness through a life of wise conduct. And you witness with gracious speech. And you do every bit of that for the sake of the glory of the Lord you love and serve. Let's pray together. Lord, there's a lot that we've said here. And there's a lot more we could learn. And it feels like our time got away from us so quickly. But Lord, you've got a plan. And you've got a call on our lives. And that call is that we would approach you, that we would pray, and that our vision would, besides being honoring you inside the church, that our vision would go upward and outward. Help it be. Help us love the gospel and sing the gospel, but help us pray and share the gospel. And Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I pray that you will help them to rest in you. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.